Hello, it's uh, Noor Kidwai here with God Yay or Nay. <laughs> thanks for coming on the show, guys. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, this week, my uh, podcast, my uh, guest is Simon King. Uh, he's an amazing comedian. You've seen him on Just for Last, HBO, Comedy Network. Uh, he's about to release his third comedy album this May called As Good As or Better Than. Uh, he's also a hilarious uh, host of the podcast, What's Wrong with Simon King. Uh, this uh, this episode, we talk about uh, Simon's career path, uh, mostly about decisions, about how he's had, had huge decisions he's had to make about uh, changing his style, persona, how to like actually rein- reinvent yourself mid-career, which is such a hard thing to do, uh, but he uh, gives us some insights into it. Uh, we talk about motivation. We talk about mental illness. We talk about morality, purpose. It's a fun podcast, and uh, this guy's one of my great friends, and he's just like an unbelievable comedian who tours all over North America and the UK. Uh, check him out. This is SimonKing.com. Uh, all the social medias, um, I got them down. Uh, you can check it out on the description of this podcast. And uh, also, uh, if you guys are just uh, tuning in to my podcast for the first time i'm just getting started out uh please the best thing you can do for me is uh give me a good rating on uh itunes apple or whatever podcast uh format you use uh giving me a good rating and maybe even leaving a nice comment those things are the best things uh that can help this uh, podcast grow and um yeah i'm just getting started out and i really want to keep this uh podcast growing and uh, adding new things to it, uh, music, uh, better editing and equipment. And uh, hopefully, uh, if this grows more and more, I can bring in more people to help out with all of those things. But uh, besides that, I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, this is episode three with uh, comedian Simon King. All right, man. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, let me uh, talk some stuff about the podcast yeah. I wanted to ask you about, actually. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, can you give a uh, give my audience like a little bit of a rundown of like when you started comedy and uh, how you got to like where you are right now? Uh, okay. I've been I've been a comic for uh, a little over twenty years. So I started in February of uh, two thousand, and uh, I come from an acting family. I come from that. So that's how I ended up in in stand up. Was it just seemed the most logical way, the fastest way to get the drug to the people, jokes wise? Like I just always wanted to be that, and then I got into it, and. Uh, I hit the road pretty early and I started working, um, you know, as a comic in Canada. I've been a full-time comedian uh, since 2002, so I haven't had any other job. So I've been kind of doing this uh, for, you know, and almost like, longer than I wasn't. You know? Yeah, no kidding. Two <laughs> yeah. years uh, yeah. into comedy and then being a full-time comic is also yeah. quite a feat. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it was one of those things where, like, when I started, too, comedy was at a really weird spot because stand-up wasn't what it is now by any stretch of the imagination because, you know, you got to think that this was before even people like Dane Cook and the Blue Collar Comedy Tour and things like that. Before comedy proved itself to be a financially uh, rewarding thing outside of the big stars, the Chris Rocks and the George Carlin's and stuff. So th- there was no real investment in it. Your best bet as a stand-up was to do stand-up, uh, hopefully get a development deal from a network, get a sitcom, and then that was the way you moved. But then when I first started stand-up, all that had gone away. That entire system had kind of disappeared um, with the advent of you know uh, reality TV and then eventually the internet. So I started this really transitional time where stand-up comedy, and it'll never quite be replicated that way again because technology 
completely changed our art form. Just mm. the ability to do what we're doing now did not exist when I started stand-up comedy. So the, basically the way you got to do things was gatekeepers. I'm not saying gatekeepers don't currently exist. Of course they do. But in the, the way that uh, it used to exist, it doesn't exist anymore. So I started in that climate where you really, if you were doing stand-up, you were doing it to be a comic and, you know, hopefully eventually get somewhere, get seen and everything. But you had to accept the fact that the, the odds were good. You would basically die in obscurity, <laughs> which, is, which is still pretty good if you're a comic in Canada. But, but, um, but so that was kind of the impetus for doing it. There was none of this, you know, there were no podcasts. You couldn't just listen to, there was no experience. The way you learned how to do it was you just did it. Yeah. So it I mean, it, it was all it was. And, and you know, if you were lucky, you'd get to go on the road with someone who'd done it a lot and could give you some tips or give you some advice, give you some information, but it really just came down to this old school style. I always, I equate it to uh, Rocky IV when um, Dolph Lundgren's character is training in the gym with all the high-tech equipment and Rocky's out there on the fucking mountainside with like <laughs> just pieces of wood and shit. Like that's how old school comics train. We were just Rocky. We just, there's no fucking equipment. Just on the mountainside carrying around, carrying around headliners' bags. That's all we're doing. Oh, God. <laughs> But yeah, so that's that's how I started, and that's that's kind of what's kept me in it is that I kind of I mean obviously I'm not saying that you don't want to be successful obviously you do I mean you know you had that as a goal but it's always been about the doing not the winning for me at least uh, you know I don't know if that'll change that that seems to be the way it is still now. Uh, um, well, uh, yeah. that's actually a good uh, transition into this just because uh, you did make like a big uh, transition in your career um, mm -hmm. from like your earlier uh, stuff when you started doing comedy, I think you were a lot, a uh, lot more goofier. Um, but then you, uh, it seemed like after mm -hmm. that you uh, turned, um, you started talking about stuff you really cared about. And like, uh, you can tell like yeah. the passion came out in your performance, but it was also uh, almost like a kind of a punk rock kind of uh, style you had to it because yeah. uh, a lot of it was kind of like uh, against culture, against the system kind of thing. Um, how did that transition come about? Well, what happened was, I mean, obviously there's, there's a few things that are, there are factors in that. One, I started comedy, I was 22 years old. And so, you know, you're a very different person at 22 than you are at 42 now. You know, I think that you have to accept that, uh, you know, growth should be expressed uh, in your art form, I think, particularly in a performance art. Um, so there was that factor, too, and I'm not downplaying that. But I do think that there came a point. I had a couple of things that happened to me that kind of made me, um, you know, reevaluate the way I did comedy. One of the things was I was uh, I was quite good at it. And I was I was very uh, I was getting a lot of success in terms of I was headlining very young and I was doing well with audiences. And it really turned a lot of other comics against me, basically for the reason that that I was just I mean, you know, it's always that that person that shows up at the union shop that actually tries the, you know, the old people leaning on the broom don't like that fucking guy. And so there was a little bit of that. And there was a lot of basically a lot of stuff levied at me because I would do impressions and characters and jokes. And I, and I, you know, I used to think that I didn't have anything to say back then, but I look at some of the material from 03, 04, 05, and I definitely did have the points. Some of the points that I make now, I just didn't have them the same way. I didn't, my skill set wasn't there. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. I was dealing with that being basically made to feel though I wasn't a real comic. Then I was on the road um, touring these places that, you know, will take the life out of you and they'll just beat you up because they're just, it's, it's a hard life being, uh, you know, as you know, being a professional Santa touring Santa. Um, it's worrying. You don't always know where your paychecks are coming from. And then I had this thing in 2005 where I did the Aspen comedy festival and I got quite a lot of, uh, success out of that. I got, I got a lot of interest 
the American industry. And so I was thrown into this at this, you know, five years into being a stand up and Not really only three very. years of that actual experience because uh, I did take about two years off in the middle there. I basically was thrown into this incredible grinder of like this meat grinder of like you're going to be what we want you to be now. And then their whole thing was do more of what you're doing now. Don't change. Don't grow. Don't evolve. And uh, and so the shows that I was getting at the time, and like I said, this was also, you know, YouTube had just arrived after I did Aspen. So it wasn't like there were a lot of avenues. You were basically doing what you were told to do. And I was so naive and so um, trusting. I didn't understand that the word no was very important. And so I spent all this time saying yes to all my managers and agents and doing everything they asked me to do and getting less and less fulfilled and getting more and more angry. And then... Um, Around 2010, I did a I did an album at the end of 2010. So I'd done a, done a TV special and a couple other things. And at the end of uh, end of 2009, beginning of 2010, I recorded an album. And I kind of felt like I was just done. I didn't want to do it anymore. I just felt like I was just like whatever I'm doing, whatever I've done, has is giving me no satisfaction. I I I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I have all these emotions. I can't express them. And I'm just dancing like a monkey. And then around spring, maybe about 10 years ago now. I was on stage at a show, um, and it was one of those nights. It was a small place in Vancouver. My buddy James was running the, the show, and it, uh, I was closing. And it was one of those nights where just everyone was having a bad set. It didn't matter what you did. Everyone had a bad set. And uh, I just remember sitting in the back of the room watching it, just being like, eh, more of this bullshit. And uh, I went on stage, and I was doing my act at the time, which is more goofy. And, and like I said, I'm not saying I didn't ha say anything to say, but it was definitely much more heavy on the absurdity and goofiness. Mm -hmm. And I started killing. I was crushing in this room that was you know, dead before. So that you would think that's a dream scenario. But I just realized as I was doing it, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well for the wrong reasons. I hate myself. I hate what's happening. And I'm the least happy person in this room. And this is what my life's going to be unless I do something. And for some reason, at that moment, I was like, right now, I make this decision. And I just stopped about 10 minutes into my set. I'm like, I'm sorry, guys. I don't like this. I don't like what I'm doing. I don't like you for laughing at it. I don't like the way I'm I don't like anything about this. And then I just talked for like 40 minutes and I just oh, expressed wow. myself and some of it was good and some of it was bad. And, and I mean, this is coming from a position where I did have stuff to lose at that time. And, and, but I just needed to know that I could just, cause I had decided in a lot of ways I was out. Like I basically was trying to figure out how to get out. I figured I'd done 10 years, you know, I was trying to get out. And then I came off stage that night and it went, it went well and it went badly. It was just this incredible, but it wasn't the same experience I'd ever had before on stage. It was this really weird, like, People were connected to it in mm -hmm. a way that they'd never been connected before. Mm -hmm. And I came off stage and I said to my buddy who runs the room, I'm like, I'm really sorry that I did that. And he goes, if you do that every time, you might be a good comic one day. And that was when I was like, fuck. All right. And so what I did was I put away all of the magic tricks for a few years. I was like, I'm going to learn to do this. I'm going to start again. But I was already making my living at it. So I had to figure out how to make that work. So I went through a really weird period of time where people would book the guy from Unfamous, they'd book the guy from whatever I was doing at the time when they'd seen it, and then I would show up, and I had to convince them in one set that what I was doing now was better and made sense and everything, and so I went through this really weird period of time from about the middle of 2010 to the end of 2010, all the way up to around 2015, end of 2015, about five, five and a half years, where I just didn't use impressions. I didn't use characters. Very rarely. I mean, once in a while. But I, I just didn't use any of the tricks I knew. I threw out all my jokes. I started fresh. Um, and then I taught myself that I could do that. And then I could do that well. And I could do that better because I was more passionate about it than even what I'd done before. Mm -hmm. And so that was what was necessary for me to... I had to take it apart to save myself, as I read once about oh. it. 
No, that, that was necessary. It was necessary. And, and, and when I did that, the funny thing is, is the spot that I'm in now, because I hated my early self too. It, you know, if you'd have caught me around 2012, I would have told you the shit that I was doing early on was, you know, was uh, infantile and I wasn't, I wasn't, I mean, I would, I didn't think it was no good because I knew it was right, but it was that I'd outgrown it and that I didn't need to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And now I look at it as like, oh man, I get to go back and be that guy when I want to now, but I can do both now. So it's like, imagine learning a martial art and then wanting to learn another one that's vastly different. You have to almost forget the one you knew before. So if you're a master of something, you got to forget it to learn to be a master of the new thing. Otherwise it'll infect it. But if you can manage to get them both and then you can combine them, which is, I think where we're at now. Yeah. Um, I've, uh, I've noticed that in your set that you brought back uh, some of that uh, silliness and goofiness, which I think just gives your, uh, gives your whole show so much more substance. Like, uh, I love listening to your set for that reason because like uh, you can you make such good points and then every once in a while you just throw in some silliness where you're just yeah. like this is great yeah and, um, well, I mean, it and it's a tool it's it a, is tool. a tool yeah sorry to cut you up but I was going to say that's the thing that I love about it is that you know if you look at Carlin or if you look at a comic that that makes points like a Stanhope or someone they have their points and stuff they make, but they also realize that you have to have some accessible pieces. So Carlin had, you know, big philosophical points and then fart jokes. Um, and that's what you need to have. Um, I was never particularly good at that stuff, but what I could do is I could do, uh, you know, goose noises and fucking impressions and shit. So what I could do is I would say something that I want to say that may be hard and difficult. And so when I released Furious, which is two, which when I first recorded it, it was 2013, I actually ended up recording again in 2015, but it was the same set basically. I just relearned it. Um, and that material, it was called Furious because it represented that side of my personality. So the unfamous was called unfamous because it represented me trying to be something that I wasn't, Mm. that I didn't even know I wanted. Furious was called Furious because it was me mad at myself for being that guy. And now the next one, which is going to be called as good as or better than, uh, is an amalgamation of the two. The one we just recorded is an amalgamation of the two, and it basically is I am as good as or better than what I thought I was when I was at both ends of that spectrum. Mm. I am as good as or better than I was when I started. I'm as good as or better than, uh, you know. So to me, it's like I've grown, and and as long as that growth continues, I think you're doing the right thing. I think when it flatlines or plateaus or even drops off, I think that's the problem. No, you have to uh, keep growing, and um, I think that's like a archetype for almost every type of artist is like that you have something um that you build on but there comes this point where you have to let it go completely i remember yeah. when I, I mean we first started touring together i remember what analogy i always used to use was that um like a comedy or any artist's uh, lifespan is like a forest like a forest grows yeah. and then it has to burn down and like then yeah. it just uses its all all its old ashes as like fertilizer to build a new forest but it has to burn down if you're going to build that bigger forest. Yeah. And that, that, and that yeah, time process takes time, and it's the whole burning down is not very fun. <laughs> but uh, it yeah. just makes uh, the rest of it better when you come out on the other side, right? I think you're right. And I think the thing is that if, you know, woe be those who don't realize um, that growth is necessary. I mean, we've all worked with comedians who you know, we're absolute killers in 2005 and we're pretty much killers in 2010 and we're okay in 2015. And now you're like, fuck dude, like grow or, or, you know, if you don't grow, you, you, you risk, uh, you risk the, uh, the, uh, you'll, you'll perish basically because what will happen was 
I mean, also, I've never understood doing it for any reason other than to be a comedian. I don't. Stand-up is a very... There aren't that many of us. I, you know, I mean, I mean, I don't know how many comedians there are in Canada, but I'd be surprised if it was more than... Plug in my phone. Plug in my thing here. But I'd be surprised if it was more than... Um, I'd be surprised if it was more than maybe, you know, the entire country, 500 full-time working comedians. And I think that's really generous. I don't even think it's that many. So you've got to think of a population of 37 million people. What percentage is that? It's infinitesimally small. Yeah, and and I think that's globally the amount of people who do stand up comedy, the amount of people who do stand up comedy and commit to it and actually make it a lifestyle is so insignificantly small that I think I I don't understand why you would do it unless you want the artistic gratification for it. Because quite frankly, as someone who's been doing this for a living for you know eighteen years and been doing it for twenty years, um, you know most comics are going to be. If they're lucky where I am, which is you make a living, you're not famous, you're not rich, you're not poor, you're, you're a journeyman, you know? That's really the goal. I mean, just to make a living doing your art form, it would be great to be Bill Burr, it would be great to be Maria Babbitt, it would be great to be that level of success. But realistically, that's not what we're looking at. So why are you doing it? Mm-hmm. Motivations are so important. And we've all worked with those comics who are 35 years in, and you're like, why are you still doing this? I think. Like, what are you getting out of it? Yeah. I also think a lot of people, um, I don't know, I think a lot of people have a little bit of delusions and like, you know, I've done it with my mind. You can like um, just keep looking at the future and being like, oh, it's going to come to me, it's going to come to me. Mm-hmm. When like sometimes you just got to get out of your mind and be like, hey, stop looking at the future, look at right now and grow, yeah. get better yeah. at what you're doing. And um, yeah, sometimes those really hard situations, really bad shows or really um, hard times in your life sometimes force you to do that a little bit more. Yeah. But I, I, yeah. I and like I, I have spot, been in that spot though where I have been that comedian who's um, yeah. not uh, growing too much and just like stuck in my head about looking to the future. So I understand it. But yeah, that is something you yeah. have to jump out of. And I think that's well, in a lot of people's lives. You have to sometimes look at where your life's going yeah. and jump out of that shit. Um, if you're just constantly looking at the future and not going, hey, what am I doing now? And like, why am I not growing now? Well, that was one of the things that was poisoning me in 2006, 2007, 2008 was because everything I was doing was towards this, you know, you've got people, you're taking these meetings and you've got the stuff and they're always like, well, what about this? What might happen here? How could you be? But everything I was doing wasn't about being a standup. Standup became a means to an end as opposed to a goal. And I had it in my head that like, I always knew that I wanted to do something. I mean, like I say, you know, comedians aren't comedians because they're happy. Something's wrong with us. So obviously we need to fill a hole somehow. <laughs> and so I knew that I wanted to do something. I knew I wanted to be somebody or, or, or do something different. I just didn't know what it was. And then when I found stand-up, it was an actual fit for me. Um, but then that all got taken away from me. I think it damaged my career. It, it may have made me – well, it definitely made me a better comic. But it, I think it really damaged my career to have – hit that level of, uh, ha- had a little bit of level of acceptance like that as early as I did. Yeah. I think if I'd, have been, if I'd have been seven or eight years down the line, more comfortable in my skin, more able to say, no, fuck you, I'm a comic. If I'd have been able to do that as opposed to being like, what? I'll do anything. Uh, part of it's my nature. I'm yeah, very yeah, much yeah. doormat sort of human. And so I get that. But I think, yeah, that was a case where I was just always looking, well, if I just do this now and I get through what, the, what you know, like I remember I, I uh, in 2000 and, Eight, I think it was 2008. Um, I auditioned for the last season of Mad TV, and my managers at the time were like, "You gotta." And this was when everything was kind of falling apart for me, anyway. And they're like, "We want you to audition for this." And I was like, "Why do I want to do this?" Like the whole reason I signed with you guys was you were going to try and get me a show. That was it went from 
you know, we're going to get your own thing down to being like, hopefully we can get you a part on this. And I was just getting more and more frustrated. And then I auditioned for it and it went well. And I was so broke at the time. I was living in LA. I was so broke. I had to walk the two miles to the audition and back. I couldn't, I didn't even have enough money for bus fare. I was that fucking broke. And I was just holding on by the skin of my teeth trying to. And then the only reason I did stand up was to make money too. That was the other problem. Stand up became a financial necessity, which was, that's poison. And so I was doing the, I was doing this audition and I did it again and I did, I got another callback and I got another callback. And, uh, now I'm very invested in this thing I didn't even want. And I get the final call back with the producers. And uh, it, it went, you know, it went really well. And so I remember going back to my apartment thinking, oh, man, this might be the thing that help, I might finally get me in a position where I can grow. All I got to do is do this series for a couple of years and everything. And then when I didn't get it, it went to the one other guy that was auditioning. And they basically, they said they either wanted a tall, skinny guy or a short, round guy. And they just went with a tall, skinny guy just for the cast that, it was perfect. Makes perfect sense. And the guy they cast is great. Um, but I remember getting real. I remember breaking down crying and being so upset. And I'm like, why am I crying for something I didn't want? And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, fuck. I didn't even know. I didn't even know who I was anymore. I had no concept of what my motivations were or why I was doing things. I was just in this washing machine and they just kept pouring suds in to drown me. And then that was one of the reasons why I was like, if I don't escape this, I'm going to lose being a stand up which I believe then and I believe now I, I, I could be good at and I have potential um, to, to offer something good. And so I was like, all right, how, how do I fix this? I mean, the only way I could fix it was to change the way I looked at it. Instead of looking at tomorrow, I look at today. I try and look at these shows. I mean, it's still try and plan down the line, but ultimately when it comes down to it, it's like, you know, I'm about to go on stage. How's this show going to go? Came off stage, good show's done. Let's move on to the next one. Instead of like, if I do this and this and this, I can get here. And, you know, you have to have a bit of that. But I think you're right. I think, you know, it, 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 it hinders growth. If you are constantly waiting, it's like if you, if you don't get a job and you just play the lottery every day, you might win the lottery, but you're going to lose your house. You know what I mean? So that's kind of how it is. <laughs> oh, that's interesting, man. Let me ask you about this because, uh, so you, um, You've always been like kind of like a mentor to me. I'll give you that because uh, when I uh, you're mispronouncing mental. mental. <laughs> <laughs> You've always been a bit of a mental to me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, honestly, man, uh, ever since I st- uh, started, um, pretty much a couple years in, you uh, started taking me on the road quite a bit, and uh, you helped me out mm. a ton. Um, and I remember, like, I was at that point in my career, I'm just trying to build up material. So, like, I'm, uh, you know, that's how it, it kind of works. And I, it took me a lot longer to figure this shit out than it took you. Yeah. So, like, uh, after five years, I wasn't even close to where you were at. But uh, I remember going on the road with you. I was just so impressed always with just um, your fearlessness to be able to say shit. And it doesn't matter what the crowd, uh, what kind of crowd it is. You were just like, you didn't care. You never judged a crowd. You just went up there and said the mm-hmm. shit that you believed in. And mm-hmm. the funny thing is I saw you uh, transform so many different types of crowds just to all yeah. make them on your side where they're cheering yeah. for you. And yeah. even when they don't do that, you don't give a shit. Like where no. that fearlessness, no. did that was that just something that develops by just staying in it so long or was that from something else or can you tell us about that? I, I think, I think there's, I think there's two sides to that that might've been the answer because naturally as I, I describe myself as a sniveling coward of a human. So I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't consider myself to be a genuinely fearless person, but what I, I have two things that I think um, contributed to that one, um, you know, uh, I, I knew I could do what I was doing. I knew I was capable of, 
being a good stand-up comic. And I've been, I'd, at that point, when you'd have met me, I would have been, you know, maybe 4,000 shows in or something. So, I mean, it's not like I was inexperienced in this. I'm also one of those guys who does every show everywhere always. Like, I'll do any, I've never once looked at an audience and punished them for being there. Mm -hmm. I'll let them come to me and I'll, I'll, I'll treat them as though they are, um, you know, as intelligent or more intelligent than me, as learned or more learned than me. I always look at them as an opportunity to, uh, however cheesy it is, to make friends. Like, that's what I look at. It's a conversation with a complete stranger. You don't know who you're talking to yet. There's a lot to learn. You have to adapt as you go. And one of the things that helps you do that is having a skill set. I always knew that no matter what happened, uh, I could go back to the act or the material that I had. I mean, I know that I have hundreds of impressions, and I know that there isn't a single audience that won't love that. So I had that weapon in my pocket. I never used it, to my credit. Uh, I feel good about that. There were times when I, I remember following Chris Gordon once, uh, when I was at my weakest in terms of like just totally trying to learn how to be this kind of comic. And Gordon was destroyed a room in Victoria. And I remember sitting in the back of the room going, well, how bad are you going to feel about yourself if you go back to the old shit just this once to survive? And it didn't do it. And that nice. was a turning point for me, too, because I was I was I don't often get scared of following comics. In fact, I don't really. But in terms of looking at it and going, this is not my room. These are not my people. Yeah. yeah. And I'm following an incredibly good comic who just destroyed this room. And I I'm like Bambi on ice with this material. I'm not ready to do this. I'm not strong enough to do this, I don't think. But then I was like, well, you're only going to learn. You know, you, you don't you don't build muscles by lifting lighter weights at the gym. My mentality was I'm in this. So why not get what I can out of it? And I, and I made that promise to myself that I would never be the least happy person in the room ever again. Doing well for the wrong reasons is worse than bombing. A thousand times worse than bombing. Because you're disingenuous to yourself. You just don't believe who you are. So it wasn't that I was brave. It was that I was a, a little bit arrogant. It was that I was a little bit selfish, very selfish. I needed to do what I do the way I do it. Otherwise, I couldn't survive. So it was, it was like I wanted... I, two twofold. One, I, I believed the audience would come with me. I believed in what I was saying, and I had the confidence of material and experience to allow me to navigate these rooms. There's very little I can play now that I've never done, even then. Hmm. The road will make you very strong. Um, and two, uh, there was a little bit of, I don't fucking care what you people want. I don't care what you want. I know why I'm doing this. I know how many dues I've paid to be here. And I know that between you and me, I earned this more than you did. You paid 20 bucks and showed up and got a sitter. And I'm uh, grateful uh, that you're here. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I threw 10 years of my life down a tube to be here to say what I want. And if you're going to hate me, hate me. But I'm pretty sure you're not going to because I can figure out how to make this work. And, and that comes from knowing how to read a crowd and knowing how to change material and knowing how to adjust and knowing, you know, you push them when you want to and you, you pull back when you don't. I mean, there's definitely got to make concessions and there's a lot that goes into it. But ultimately the mentality was, why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I want to do it. Why do I want to say the things I want to say? Because I need to. And that was it. And then there was, and then, then, then you're in a court, then there's no, you don't have to talk yourself into it other than that. You have to be like, well, what the fuck? I mean, I'll, I'll, be a, I'll go buy groceries if I want. You know what I mean? And like, I'm doing this for fulfill, fulfillment. And I'm not going to let some audience get between me and fulfillment. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. I like uh, that's so much easier said than done. Like, it really yeah, is. Because, well. like, uh, trust me, man, I, I've been through it and I see so many other comics. Like, 
it, it's really sometimes hard to fucking like uh, look at an audience and be like, hey, I'm just gonna say this shit, especially when you're like, oh man, this does not look like my audience. Like, especially when yeah. you get that kind of feeling, mm -hmm. that's a really tough thing to do. But um, yeah. Like the one thing you said, that is you. You had your goal in your mind. You want to be a genuine yeah. comic. You want you. You found out that this is what's going to make you happy. And if you had that goal in your mind, then when you look at this situation, you can be like, you know what? I got to go and just uh, be true to myself here. And yeah, um, yeah that's uh, good for you, man. Uh, that's uh, pretty much what this podcast is about, making those kind of <laughs> yeah. decisions, getting better. Like uh, that's what I kind of want to make this shit about, like really uh, – people learning how to be better and um, getting better at anything they do and uh, finding like how to be authentic is such a yeah. big thing about that. Motivation is so important. I think that, that people don't really, and I think we have to understand this in our world of cancel culture too. You know, you see someone tweet something and it'll be like, they tweeted this thing. Well, no one ever bothers to ask why or, or, but we don't do that with our daily actions either. Like, like, why am I doing this thing? Why am I, you know, what, what am I motivated? I mean, I'm, I'm getting outside of the fact that, you know, debt is prison and there's all these financial obligations and everything that we have. I understand that. I'm talking about the logistics of life. I'm talking about personal motivation. You know, when you go to university, why are you taking the course you're taking? Why do you want to do the thing? When you meet a person that you want to date, why are you meeting them? What, what, what is it that you want from them? What is it that you want from yourself? What, how do you want to be? We don't really examine that stuff as much as probably we should. We are very reactionary in the way mm -hmm. we behave as humans, and I think, in, in at least Western culture, in my experience, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hardly well-traveled, and I don't really have knowledge of a lot of other societies, but from what I've gathered in, in Western culture, we're very reactionary. We're very uh, have-need, fill-need, not, mm -hmm. you know, foresee-need, fill-need, have-need, fill-need, have-want, fill-want. Um, we kind of see things like I'm very jealous of people who can work a job they don't like but don't care because they're more interested in the weekend. Like if you're a person who's perfectly happy working for the weekend, you don't give a fuck what you do during the weekend. I don't care how I make money. I'm just happy to work for the weekend. That's where I get my joy. That's great. If you can do that, whatever it is that makes you happy. But if you're the kind of person that like doesn't ever think about what their goals might be or why or where they're going, you're doing yourself a disservice mm -hmm. because you're also like – like one of the things I hate the most about myself is that I only speak one language. It drives me crazy. I have tried to learn another language multiple times. I know it's very hard for me to do. I'm not going to stop trying because it's a skill set I want to have. Now, if I looked at it and went, you can't learn this, there's no point, why try? I would be doing myself the disservice of missing the opportunity of trying, of knowing that I can't do it. I mean, that's one of the other things too is like, imagine all the shit you, everyone wonders about what they could do if they tried. Imagine all the shit you can't do, but you don't know you can't do it till you fuck it up. That's something we don't look at. We don't look at the opportunity to make mistakes as a growth thing. We're, we're part of capitalistic society too is, is seen as ever climbing. The idea that we could misstep seems to be a bad thing, but that's how we learn. I've learned more from losing arguments than winning them. You know what I mean? And I, think, 100%. And I think we don't do that in society. I think in our society, we, we, we don't reward failures very well, or not failures, but we don't reward attempts nearly as much as we should. And well, I think people individually need to do that. Yeah. Well, like how you were talking about, like, it's, it's self-reflection, actually, like, looking at uh, yourself, mm -hmm. like, looking at your motivations, like how you started out with, or when you fail, the reason failure is so good for you because it actually brings on some reflection. Like, you fail, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you start looking at why did I fail. So, like, you lose an argument. Yeah. 
that makes your argument that much better or it makes you see yeah. the weakness in your argument um yeah no i uh i agree with that completely i think our whole society is very um not very self-reflective, which I think uh, if you no. go look back in um, philosophy, Eastern or Western philosophy, like that was uh, one big thing. Uh, look at your life, like actually look mm -hmm. at it. And um, why are you doing that thing? Like, I, I like how you said that. Ask yourself, what are your motivations for doing this? And uh, when you ask those questions and you actually start examining them, um, you learn so much about yourself and you learn what makes you happy. You learn what makes you happy and like what you should go after and you can make significant changes in your life. I don't think people uh, realize that. Uh, that's the one shitty thing I uh, really am kind of makes me sad. Uh, seeing a lot of people my age especially just kind of saying like oh the world shit is just going to be shit and they don't yeah, really no. yeah. they don't really look forward to anything or look yeah. ahead to anything and yeah. then and then you're like you're saying they're very reactive they live their lives just uh reactive yeah. to their situation rather than um asking themselves these questions it's kind of a sad thing i hope that changes uh especially after this whole coronavirus thing hopefully like there'll be some changes like in how people think about this shit I think they will. I think what's happening now, I think social media, see, you know, we have to kind of look at social media as a lot of us, you know, don't realize what we have here because this is like, I was born in 77, so I was born analog and I, I grew up digital. It's a very weird time. But I was also a grown up before the internet really kicked in. And so, you know, I lived this kind of weird dual life where I had that life before this, where we didn't have this intimate connection with millions upon billions of other humans, which is something that is a fascinating tool, which gives you access to people's lives. Once we get over the what we're doing for the first, you know, however, 15, 20 years, when it stops being a novelty, when we stop having to show off online, when we stop having to pretend, when we stop being fake and we mm. start just treating it like what it is, which is a connection. You know, I mean, think of it like, you know, if you work in an office and if you work in an office with four or five people, you know, those four or five people might get to know you really well if you see them every day. But if all of a sudden you work in an office with 500 people, you know, you might decide, oh, I'm going to reinvent myself and pretend I'm a just different person for these 500 people because they don't know me. And that's what kind of happened with social media initially. We all got this really weird gold rush mentality of like, well, we'll all be YouTube stars and we'll all just get attention and we'll all and it feeds a need. But once I think we've learned to satiate that, and once I think, you know, my son is three, his generation, uh, I think they're going to grow up so much in, connected with this world that it will no longer be a novelty. It will be the same way we treated microwaves or VHSs. It's just like, oh, it's a thing we have. Mm -hmm. I think once we see that as a tool, it'll allow us to more objectively use it. And I think that that may give people a positive uh, outlook because we are seeing with this coronavirus thing, um, you know, regardless of of the actual risks to society or whatever, what we're seeing for the first time is that the perceived risk has forced us, and I'm not saying there is no risk, I'm not saying there is no, I'm just saying that, that it's not an extinction event, but the way we're reacting is a little bit overblown for some people because they've never really seen this many people scared before yeah. on a personal, individual level. But what it's done is it's connected with in an extremely interesting way that we were not capable of before. I remember when the Arab Spring was happening. It was like I think it was like oh, eight, twelve. Oh, wasn't it? Oh. no, there was one in what was the one in um, what was Tahrir Square? Oh, seven, oh eight. Maybe oh, it was okay. later. Than that. Yeah, I, I thought. Yeah, I thought it was all. I mean, this is how badly informed I am. But what I'm saying is, like, I remember, uh, I remember watching the news and what the news was telling me about what was going on, and I remember watching a. 
a Twitter a video on Twitter someone had posted of a girl getting shot and killed. And I'd never seen anything like that before. And it was horrendous. But it also made me realize that things are happening that we're just not told about. And we don't have information on. And it made me realize that there's a lot going on in the world that we can learn from individuals more than from, you know, we had been suckling off these media teats for a long time, yeah. getting information we were given. And if you read, you know, if you watch CNN, if you watch MSNBC, if you watch Fox or anything, they'll give, each give you a spin on everything they want you to know the way they want you. That's one of the closer of, of my last special is, is about, about that. Like, you can make anyone believe what you want if you push it the right way. But now we have access to things from so many different things that we're, we're actually given an opportunity to make our own minds up, which is dangerous because we're like a chimp with an A-bomb at this point. We have all the fucking power and no concept of how to deal with it. But that will change. And I think this is an example of that changing. Now we have all this power, and what we're doing is we're like, well, we can actually make a physical change in the real world. Instead mm -hmm. of just canceling someone online, which is previously where our powers had kind of been limited, now we're <laughs> stopping the spread of a virus in the real world. Now we're changing pollution levels. But this is teaching us that collective action, pulling in the same direction, it has incredibly powerful outcomes. And I think this and things like, you know, political campaigns that are mostly online. And I think when young people particularly start to realize that if you're 20 now, you have 60 years left on this planet minimum to make a difference. And you don't have to do everything all the time. You don't have to punish yourself if you don't change the world every day. But you only have to do a little tiny thing. And everyone else only has to do a little tiny thing. And then we can, you oh. know, find the curve of virus, for example, something in real time. It and that's something that I don't think we've ever had before. That's actually the best thing I think that's coming out of this. It's like that um, actual, the belief that um, we can actually come together and make changes. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing mm -hmm. I've noticed, uh, especially in the States, I know this is prevalent there. They they talk about, they, they always talk about small government in the States. They talk about trying to be able to like, know when people come together, this kind of shit, it just never works. It's just, it doesn't work. Yeah. And that's why they try to keep everything private and stuff. Um, but yeah. like that, that mindset seeped all over the world and like yeah. um it's honestly I, I like a lot of people try to like uh disencourage people to actually um you know discourage people to actually do that shit um to yeah. actually like come together and like solve problems yeah. together um yeah I, I hope that belief comes back because like when people believe that then like i think when you want to start solving problems like the environment and um like poverty and stuff um stuff like that we can actually come together and like actually solve this shit we're seeing that the power doesn't have to be we're seeing how incredibly powerful populace is yeah i mean we're seeing how incredibly powerful individual action as a group can be as opposed to because capitalism particularly teaches you yours get yours bigger faster better yours uh, you know the the best rise to the top that's just the way it is and if you if you don't work hard you're not going to make it and all this other bullshit and it's all bullshit it's all lies because they want to maintain the power in 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 a few small pockets that's beneficial to the people that are in control want to maintain control if if the king of the kingdom said to you you know you're all just as good as me well that wouldn't fucking be good for the king at all and so what we're doing is we finally figured out well hold on a second if you're telling me that i have to listen to this government person or if i have to listen to this what we're doing is we're teaching ourselves anarchy um not in the sense of you know what it was pushed on us by Woodrow Wilson, the idea that anarchy is lawlessness. That's not what it is at all, because they associate law with being controlled from the top. Anarchy is rule from the bottom. Anarchy is change from the bottom. And that's what we're doing. We're actually doing it right now. This is a an example of how socialist ideas and anarchy can work. 
it, not completely alone by itself. You can't you can't just have people allowed to do whatever the fuck they want all the time. You know that's a nightmare. But what it's showing is is that it's a component part of 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 good governance. Is that the idea that you can mobilize entire? I mean. Our grandparents' generation understood this in the war. They understood that if you mobilize together, but they had a very tangible threat. This is more existential. This is more, look, numbers-wise, odds are very low that you will get it and die from it. It's, that's just the odds. Unless you are immunocompromised or in one of those high-risk situations, if you're just a regular average person, you're unlikely to get or die from this. What your biggest experience in the Western world Particularly with this virus, will be is it's hard to get toilet paper and Lysol wipes, but <laughs> and, and your sport and your sports are canceled. But that makes it real because I don't remember any time. I'm 42. I don't remember any time in my life not being able to get something from a grocery store because we are the one percent of the world. We have everything we want, and all of a sudden, reality is hit is that hey, if we can, we created this. The toilet paper thing is interesting. We created the toilet paper shortage ourselves. It didn't exist. The supply lines are still there. It's not like the truck stopped running. We just made it happen. We could, that's the negative side of it. But what we also did was, and it, you know, knock wood, it looks like it particularly here in Canada, we flattened the curve. We could do that too. And so what we're learning is that we have this incredible amount of power and the people that are terrified of that are the people who want to run it. They want to run us because they don't want us to know what we can do. And I'm not saying flip over cop cars, burn it all down. I'm not eat saying- Eat the rich, eat the rich. Eat the rich. <laughs> yeah, you're saying, let them know they're delicious. Let them know that you, you could, and that's where we're at. And I think it's an incredible time. What has happened in the last 10 to 15 years in terms of the awakening of the soft and lazy West is remarkable. Because we also believe, like, People forget that it's something like 30% of America has high-speed internet. It's not even the whole country. It's not even, it's not even, the, you know, there's like so much of that country that's poor, that doesn't have shit. But we just think because all of us have access to this shit, and people listening to this probably have access to this, that we just assume this is a way of life for everyone. It's not. This is spreading. This, this technology that we have is spreading all over the world. I mean, I think it was Elon Musk was talking about making the entire world have Wi-Fi. I mean, having access, technology is getting cheaper. This is only going to get bigger. Mm -hmm. And those of us who are at the helm of it right now, those of us who are at the beginning of it now, owe it to everyone who's about to come on board to show them we can do good with this. And I think, strangely enough, what's happening right now might be the thing that kicks that over. This might be the end of the old, the beginning of the social media revolution, the way we knew it. I think this might be like the industrial revolution when we still had the technology but child labor laws came in so we weren't killing Jimmy sweeps like i think that might be where we're going i hope yeah um I, this is going to give a like a really positive change in that sense for sure um if we mm. can actually uh like if we can actually uh, like like i was saying if we can actually believe that coming together actually solves problems i think that's going to help yeah. us a ton like especially yeah. all the future problems we're going to face yeah. Um, I'm still even wondering, like, when automation comes and takes out so many jobs, like, yeah. um, there's going to have to be some sort of response where we all come together as a unit yeah. and, like, take care of that kind of shit. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and now it's like we're going to have to fucking be thinking about people on the other side of the globe as well because yeah. um, all these problems now are so much more interlinked than we can actually really think about. It's, um, well, when, when the coronavirus hit China... Uh, you know, it was like people didn't realize that was going to affect iPhone prices. I mean, it didn't even occur to them that that's where our slaves live. 
I mean, to be terribly brutal about it, in the Western world, we have a slave economy. We just don't have them on our property anymore. We just don't have them in our country anymore. Mm -hmm. And so we farm out this stuff. So when you no longer have workers willing to able to work for a dollar a day, you have to do some real soul searching as to why it was okay for them to work for a dollar a day in the fucking first place. And I think this is causing this kind of reckoning. And I see it in small – It's like I said, one of the reasons I pulled myself off Facebook is because it's also gone haywire in the other aspect. People are losing their fucking minds because they've never experienced hardship in any capacity. But this also might make people – who maybe previously said, ah, fuck immigrants. They might be like, well, hold on a second. Like, maybe it's hard where they are. Or maybe, you know, and one of the things that blows my mind about this is how incredibly upset everyone's getting over uh, the coronavirus and the death toll. I, I'm not saying it's not bad. Of course it is. It's terrible when anybody dies. But, you know, how many Iraqi civilians died for an unjust war? And, and yet, like I said, that the NBA didn't cancel their season for that, so we didn't feel it. Mm. And so maybe what we need to do is start to feel inconveniences. Maybe what we need to do is go, hey, there's still a homeless problem and it's really bad, so you can't get apple fritters anymore. I'm not going to explain to you why that works, but just the point is if you want apple fritters, fucking help us get these people housing. Maybe that's what we need to that's feel actually, it. Yeah, that's actually... Because we insulate uh, ourselves very easily from this shit, you know? No, that's actually a really good thing. The, every uh, every week the government comes yeah. on the uh, TV and takes away something for you. No Egg McMuffins this week, all right? We're going to cure homelessness. There'll be no Tiger King episode three through seven unless you fucking... <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's weird. That's the motivation, right? Because the idea of, like, giving to charity... I mean, one of the reasons the middle class gives the most to charity is because they know they could be there. They feel it. They go, look, a lot of people, most people are a few paychecks away from ending up on the street. That's mm -hmm. a reality of our society. It mm -hmm. just doesn't feel like that because you can go and get a Cinnabon, whatever the fuck you want. And that's the problem is, is we have access to so many things and we have so much privilege. And I use the word privilege as it's intended to be used because that's what we fucking have. Mm -hmm. We have so much of everything. I remember reading a story once about a Syrian immigrant. I think it was Syrian. And uh, she just started crying in a grocery store because she'd never seen so much fucking food in years because the war had just taken everything and and we don't take that you know like i said I, I went to the grocery store and i was like oh they don't have toilet paper that's fucking frustrating i'm like yeah but that's normal most places the idea that americans pretend that socialism would be the cause of red lines and everything and don't realize that capitalism is causing that right now that's what because capitalism has also taught people and the way that our capitalist society is this program just teaches people to hoard, teaches people to be afraid. You can't make – that's one of the reasons things are so crazy right now. You can't make generations of people afraid of everything for decades and expect it not to boil over when shit like this happens. Yeah, no kidding. That's what's happening too. People are no made kid. afraid all the time. The news makes you afraid all the time. And if you look at the numbers, just of the numbers of this, 95 to 97% of all cases are mild. That's not a – it's definitely worth taking action, but it's not a – hoard all the toilet paper and all the canned goods you can situation. That's not what it is. None of the supply lines are cut. None of this is going to affect you other than what you can do to help people. Or, you know, if, if someone you know gets sick. But what I mean is, like, it's things aren't going to collapse. Water's not going to get turned off. We need to find the balance between mm. that and understand that we have the privilege of these resources. Let's use them for good, you know? And, and I, I, think, I think I'm hoping that, that this is going to be – because this will, you know – in the scale of things, in 2025, people aren't going to really remember this. In 2029, I mean, I don't even remember 
the H1N1 pandemic of 2009. Oh, I don't yeah, no, yeah. That's because yeah. it didn't cancel basketball. That's why. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, people really are remembering this. We, we, was, every, people well, are, so, yeah, people stay. Oh, yeah. Because this I is going to be. If we've had social media the way we did now in 20, 2009, would it have been different? Would the pressure have been there to cancel things? Would the idea that, because one of the reasons the NBA canceled is because A, you can't have someone getting fucking sick at the game and then getting sued and shit. And also, no one was going, so they're not going to make any money. I mean, they didn't cancel it because they're altruistic. They canceled it because it was economic, right? And mm -hmm. that's what they're doing. And that's what these companies are doing. And that's from pressure from the outside. We actually made that happen. We made that happen. James Bond was going to be released in March or April or something. It's not going to be released now because they know no one's going to go to the theater. Mm -hmm. We we're showing right now that 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 demand can affect supply. It's yeah. doing that in our own way. Yeah, you know? it's actually that is uh, very interesting. Yeah, well, uh, it is. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I hope people wake up to their power. I really do. Um, all right, man. Let's uh, switch topics right. here. Yeah. Um, uh, let's uh, talk about uh, mental illness. You've uh, always been like very outspoken about that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, like. Can you uh, tell us uh, about your experiences with mental illness and like um, how do you like try to help people? Like, because I've always seen you post online uh, sharing your yeah. experiences and trying to convince people to get help. Yeah, I think that it's it's funny because uh, you know, uh, physician heal thyself. Like the idea that I try to convince people to get help, but I also was very slow to get help myself because I I have a really weird relationship with mental illness. Uh, I I didn't even know. Uh, what was wrong with me until probably about 2012. I, I mean, all of my childhood and everything, I didn't realize I was depressed. I didn't realize I had anxiety and all these other things. I didn't realize what was going on. I just thought this is the way people are. I didn't realize that you could be happy. I didn't think that was something that was a thing that humans did. And, you know, when it was this abstract concept that was Hollywood to me, that the idea that you could be, and I'm not saying I didn't have moments of happiness. Of course I did. But the idea that you could you know, wake up and live every day and, and it, it'd be okay and it not be painful it was strange. Um, and there were a lot of outside forces at play. Um, but it was described to me once as one of the things about having depression particularly, which I think is way more pervasive than most people realize, is, um, you know, most people's line of like is here. Like this is, this is, this is normal. And so highs are up here and lows are down here. But people who are depressed, their line is here. So they yes, never get as high fair. and they get a lot lower. And so it's like you're, you're, you're swimming with weights on everything you do. And once you accept that, you don't wallow in it, but you have to understand, you know, it's like if you want to be a marathon runner and, uh, and you know, you've got sprained ankles, you have to accept the fact that you have fucking sprained ankles and you have to let them get better before you could run that marathon. Because you might still be able to run the marathon, but you definitely won't be able to do your best. And that's the idea that kind of occurred to me is like a lot of people don't know they're hurting or maybe don't know why or don't know what's going on because nobody really fucking talked about it for a long time. I mean, when I was young, we just didn't talk about this shit. It wasn't, you were just like, God, oh, just fucking cheer up. Even now people still have those mentalities and those mm. attitudes. So I thought, you know, I talk about it in my act and I talk about it and, and the little tiny bit of profile I have, I try and share and I try and go, look guys, this is what's wrong with me. This is, I mean, my podcast is called what's wrong with Simon King for a reason. It was originally what was wrong with the world. And it's just turned more introspective because I realized that it's a connection point that a lot of people don't realize they need. You know, when you, when you first say to someone, Oh man, I'm fucking, I'm depressed. And I'm not, not just like I'm sad, like I'm depressed. And they'll, you know, odds are that they'll be like, 
yeah, me too. Or like, the, you'll talk, and then you'll have a real fucking conversation. And then all of a sudden you won't be as alone. And then all mm. of a sudden you'd be like, well, okay, I'm not weird for this. Maybe this is normal. Maybe I can get some help. It encourages you to feel less, you know, it's, it's, you feel less like a pariah, less like, because whenever you're depressed or, you know, I have obsessive compulsive disorder and depression and anxiety and a lot of other crazy shit that goes on in my head. One of the things that saves me is stand up because I'm able to get that out. I have an artistic expression. A lot of people don't. And so you're just dealing with this constant, you know, storm in your head. Mm -hmm. And you may not know why. You may punish yourself. You may punish other people. You know, mental illness has touched my life. Friends, uh, family, myself, so many people I know in my cycle, circle have it. I would say at least half of the people I know have some description of mental illness. Mm -hmm. And it is an illness. It's not a, it's not, that's the other thing too, is it's not, it's not something you did to yourself. You didn't do it to yourself. You have a, you know, the reason antidepressants work, a lot of antidepressants, is because they normalize chemicals that are not normal in your brain. Mm -hmm. The reason that antipsychotics work is because they normalize chemicals. Your brain is an incredibly complex piece of equipment, and anything that's thrown off a little bit can fuck it up. But we're also told, and this is again back to the way our society's built, suck it up and work. Suck it up and suck it up and be productive. You're not being productive? Fuck you. Get back to work. Work. You know, someone who's sad is not a good worker. Yeah. And that's poison. And we treat that with school too. Like we reward people for getting to school on time. We don't. You know, you, you're like what was Noam Chomsky said once? He's he said when he was a kid, he uh, he got an F in something, but he didn't get detention. But he got detention for being late. And his friend uh, didn't understand that. His friend from Europe was like, well, what? Why wouldn't they punish you for not getting good grades as opposed to not following the rules? And that's what it is. And so you have to accept the fact that, you know, you're not, you're not running on the same racetrack as everybody else. And that's okay because there's other people on that racetrack too. It doesn't mean you can't and you shouldn't get better and, and cause it, it is an illness. But I mean, you know, if cancer made people sleep all day and quit work and not, not be able to go out and social subjects, we'd be like, well, then that cancer is really wrecking that person's life. But instead it's mental illness and we go, oh, that mental illness, fuck it. It's not, you know, just get it together. Yeah. And that's the, the stigma that we deal with, you know. You see um, it uh, changing a little bit uh, as time goes on? I think on? so. Yeah. I think that. so. Yeah. It's, it's changed a lot. I mean, the fact that I talk about it on stage and I joke about this, but in any given year, I'll usually end up holding a crying middle-aged man in some small town in Alberta, you know, about three or four times. Because, really? yeah, the amount of people that that connect with me over shit that I say, or uh, I remember I did a show once and uh, this woman came over to me, never met me before, um, and she'd lost three of her children to opioid uh, overdoses, and all of them related to mental illness and everything. And we had this incredibly long conversation. But these connections of that, course, of that course. don't exist unless you bring this up. And I'm not saying it's it's ideal to bring up in every situation, but I am quite open about the fact that I'm bonkers. But I'm I'm and I joke about it because. But I'm but I understand that I'm bonkers, and I understand that. Like one of the things about this Corona thing is like one of the, the problems with OCD is that you get into spiral thinking and you end up kind of tail spinning into this negative. It's like anxiety. You just you can't get out. You constantly try and Google things to find reasons why, you know, if you convince yourself, like once I convinced myself I had black mold poisoning. I didn't have black mold poisoning, but I convinced myself I did because I was in a, a very bad mental state oh, okay. for other things. It just manifested itself in that. So I Googled constantly. I was on a bus trip from London to um, Newcastle. So it was like five and a half hours. And I remember I Googled things constantly, constantly, constantly Google things. And um, I found very little to corroborate that I could possibly have 
anything wrong with me. Mm. You know, it was like, well, you know, you've had blood tests over the years. You don't have like everything I could find. You don't have any, you know, you don't, your white cell counts not elevated, all this other stuff. But you find one comment from some guy on Reddit whose friend might have had it. And then you're just like, fuck, that's it. Because you're looking for that confirmation yeah. that you're not, you know, uh, it's kind of like reassuring, like, oh, if something is really wrong, then I'm not crazy. Oh, it's, okay. you, what you have to okay. do is be like, I'm a little crazy. And that's okay, because otherwise you end up down this hole, okay. and, and the only way to spin out of it is to kind of realize that, like, it's like it's like when you get the spins from alcohol. Sometimes you got to hold on to the edge of the bed just to remind yourself that you're not actually spinning, and that's what it is. I like that. So it's it seems like it's kind of like an acceptance thing. You have to accept, like, hey, this is how I am, yeah. and like once you get yeah. that acceptance, I, I honestly, man, that like works with so many uh, yeah. types of things, uh, yeah. like mentally. Like it's it is kind of true. Um, dealing with anxiety myself, um, I remember like a big thing that helped me getting over anxiety is like learning to stop fighting it and actually yeah. accept it. Yeah. And uh, when it kind of yeah. comes in a wave, you just kind of tell yourself like, hey, like I'm anxious right now. That's fine. Yeah. I'm gonna learn how to get over this. But, yeah. Like that acceptance almost kind of dispowers it, like uh, kind of takes away a lot, it really takes away a lot of the power from it. Yeah, that's what happened with me with the OCD stuff, and I would realize that I would get in this, before I knew what the animal was, I knew I was depressed, I didn't, I knew I had anxiety, but I didn't know I had this other thing going on, and and then, you know, at first it was just, I used to think about it, like, oh, well, yeah, I just, my shoes have to be laced a certain way, and then I believed that if I think a certain way, things might happen. I mean, I'm not a, in any capacity, a, uh, sort of a spiritual or anything guy. I don't believe in luck, really. I, don't, I mean, I jokingly say it, but I don't. But in my brain, I believe that if I have, you know, uh, if I have these things in my pockets, things will go okay, and if I don't, they won't. That's because I'm looking for control. And once I figured out that's what that is, that's what the, it's a control thing. Mm. I have a real problem with not having control. It's one of the reasons I didn't really get drunk until I was in my 30s because I didn't like the idea of not being in control. I don't like, it's one of the reasons I don't use drugs. I don't like the idea of not being in control. I can't handle it because I'm worried that, not that I will do something that will affect me, that I will do something that will affect others. My anxiety fuels uh, this thing where I don't want to be out of control because I'm anxious that I will fuck up. You know how if you ever have a really bad night drinking and you wake up and you have the booze blues where you feel like, oh man, what did I fucking do? Oh God, how did I screw up? What did I say to someone? Did I offend someone? I felt like that all the time. I felt like constantly like, why do people hate me? What did I do wrong? They don't. Yeah. But in your brain, you've manufactured. So once you accept the fact, you go, oh, why does this person, you know what? They don't. I'm just crazy. That's just what crazy is. I just got to figure out that's not happening. Put that behind a door. It's like having an imaginary friend and then one day realizing they're imaginary. They're like, okay, okay. Like, you're still real. We're still having a conversation. But ultimately, I know that this isn't the real world. I can control this or I can, and I need to get help to control it. And I do. I take, I take uh, pills to help me now. And uh, I didn't do that for a long time because uh, I was worried that it would affect my ability to do comedy. But then I also looked at it and I was like, well, you know what? It's either, what do you want to be, a better human or a better comic? Well, better human, ultimately. Because comic is a thing. Comedy is a thing I do, and yeah, I am to a degree. But you know, being alive is something I I need to be a good father. I need to be a good partner. I need to be these things, and and that's more important than anything else. And so I took the necessary steps. And and I encourage people. You know, you also don't know what you could be if you were happy or healthy. Mm. That's the other thing. Like I said, the marathon thing. I mean, imagine if you'd only ever known 
you know, sprained ankles. You'd never run on not sprained ankles. And one day you did, you'd be like, what the fuck? Yeah. That's a great analogy. I like that. Um, yeah, man. Fucking, uh, that's uh, cool. I really like how you, uh, talked about that. I think my listeners will really appreciate that. Fucking, yeah, man, that mental illness, that's, uh, I think, yeah. uh, something we're also going to figure out a lot in the next, uh, decade we're or learning. so. It is, we're uh, learning. yeah, it is cool. And, um, yeah, I love how you kind of gave that, like, you have to accept it and understand, like, yeah. also see that, like, a part of yourself is an illusion. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Or, like, yeah. it does exist. It's there. But, like, but that's not you. Yeah. You. yeah. It's yeah, not yeah, yeah. you. Yeah, and you can. you're dealing with, it's not, that's that's the way to look at it. Look, like I said, look at it like, uh, you know, uh, like a broken leg. Like, okay, it, it's still my leg. It just needs fixing. But it doesn't mean it's not going to work again. It just means right now it doesn't work the way it should. So we put a cast on it and we get it better. And mm-hmm. then when it's good, we go. But if we keep walking on it, it won't heal. And that's the idea. I'm nice. using a lot of leg analogies. I'm an amateur podiatrist. I do orthopedic surgery in my spare time. So uh, like, <laughs> that's hilarious. All right, man. I got to give you the freaking, this is what the podcast is right. called. So let's give it to you. God, yay. Right. Or nay. What did he say about me when you asked him? <laughs> did, he say, did he say Simon yay or nay to God? And he was like, whoa. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I'm an atheist. I don't believe uh, in any higher power. I don't believe um, in any uh, essential. Uh, I don't believe in any through line to the universe that, that, that is there's a predetermined thing. I also don't subscribe to linear time very well. So there's that about me. So I believe that what is happening now has happened, will happen, and continues to happen. I believe in that. So I do believe that our perception of things is very, very limited. Um, If there were to be any sort of supernatural power, it would be well beyond what we could possibly comprehend to even put into the idea that it's someone who manipulates things. um, It it would, it's, any sort of grand power would be such an advanced concept beyond anything we could possibly put together um, that I can't believe that any interpretation or idea we have of a god right now could possibly be accurate. So as far as okay. I'm concerned, it, it would it's it's analogous to like, you know, a rat might imagine that it, that the scientist is god but has no clue that the scientist has a boss. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that's the idea to me. So it's like, like, we may be believing that something exists out there, but in reality, anything that would be powerful enough to create all living things, to control the movements of cells, to control the movements of planets, the size of the universe, if that really was a thing, which I said, as I, I don't believe, but if, if it really was, it would be so beyond our concept of imagining that, that we, we wouldn't even know how to name it. We wouldn't even know what it was. So I think as an abstract concept, God of being something that we cannot understand. Well, that exists in something that there's so much we don't understand. If you need to name it, you can name it whatever you want. But in the idea of something directly manipulating individuals' lives or anything like that, I do not believe uh, that that's that's a thing at all. I don't have any connection to anything spiritual. I find comfort in the finality of death. Uh, I find comfort in the fleeting aspect of life. Okay. And the insignificance of it all, I, I I find great comfort in that. I don't have enough ego to believe that what I am is important enough to live for eternity on a cloud. I just don't think it's a thing. Also, it would be pretty crowded up there. Mm. And I, and I think that uh, to, to further that, I believe that religion is, uh, is a 
human interpretation of the divine. So if something really is divine, if there really is something that big, uh, probably doesn't give a shit what hat you wear. So I just, uh, I just think that that's kind of, we have to really understand that if a concept is going to be that big, if something's that big, who gives a fuck if you eat fish? You know, that's mm -hmm. the way I look at it. Yeah. Well, Hey, uh, I think, uh, pretty much how that's how religion or that's how people are looking at religion or the idea of God. Now I've noticed that, mm -hmm. um, which is good. I don't like the whole idea that there is something governing us and like actually mm -hmm. controlling like the universe and stuff. I, I think that idea of God is slowly leaving. I mm -hmm. think it's, mm -hmm. I, I think I that's think a very that. archaic kind of, not even archaic, yeah. maybe 20 years ago or whatever, but like, <laughs> that's archaic by today's standard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding, no kidding. That's all oh, back when we were believing in God and listening to Backstreet Boys, I don't know about that. <laughs> no, I, uh, yeah. one thing, uh, I guess, uh, that's kind of been like one of the reasons I like starting this podcast. I'm trying to see uh, how other people look at it. I think uh, myself, yeah. I kind of, uh, and you know, like I, I've talked about how I use psychedelics and stuff. So sometimes yeah. I, 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 I do believe uh, nature as a whole does have some sort of uh, intelligence yeah. that is greater than yeah, us that yeah. we can tap into. Um, when I say that though, like, how do you, uh, look at that? I'm not in like a judge. I know, I know you're not a judgmental guy, but like yeah. in a way, like you just don't really believe that. Kind no, of no. So I think I should be more clear. I, I, I have no problem with like, as, as in, so just because I don't believe in a higher power, doesn't mean I have any problem with faith. I've never had a problem. I'm not a militant atheist. You've known me a long time. I'm not, mm -hmm. um, I don't have any problem with, I have a real problem with religion because I think that's a human way of taking someone's belief system and using it against them or for yourself. I don't like that. But I believe that if you find order, I mean, there is order in the universe in terms of the way things work. I'm not saying that it's all completely random. Uh, I, I, you know, obviously we have ecosystems. We have, I mean, even this virus, it works in a certain way. It does a certain thing. It, you know, it, it lives in a host long enough, survives, and there's a certain way things work. There's certain patterns. Mm -hmm. And I think that whatever you use to examine those patterns. I think it would be a foolish person that would say there is no uh, no pattern in the, in the universe. There's nothing we, I mean, obviously there's a lot going on. By saying that we don't know is, is the best way to approach it. I think the idea of, I think the idea of being open to, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say that like if, a, if, if there wasn't all of a sudden a massive proof and something that there was a God, I'm not going to say I would just be like, no, even if it was actually happening. I'm going to take that but yeah. based on everything I know, based on everything I've been given, based on all the information I have, and based on what I personally believe, I don't believe there is. And But I do believe that there is a, a way things work on the planet because we exist. I mean, and, 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 and we've existed a long time. If there was complete randomness, we wouldn't even have an ecosystem to support us. So there is definitely, and I think whatever you use to connect to, I, I'm very much a big fan of whatever you need, as long as you don't hurt anybody, you fucking do it. Yeah. And it really does come down to that. Do no harm. It, it's, if you live your life by that, do no harm. You don't need a God to tell you that. You don't need someone in a hat. If you just live your life by the idea of like, whatever I do should do the least amount of harm possible on the planet and leave it better than when I came here. You can't go wrong with that. Yeah. Because you're I, helping someone else. You know, I'm you're uh, helping yourself. Yeah, no, I've uh, I've noticed that you've been very consistent with that. You, uh, if, if yeah. people aren't hurting anybody, I know uh, just knowing yeah, you, 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 you don't care. Um, all right, let no. me ask you, uh, let me ask you this then. When it comes to uh, purpose, then like how you, uh, like, do you ever believe like does this life have purpose or why are you here? Do you ever think like that at all? 
Yeah, I think that the I think the idea of uh, of purpose is important for humans, particularly. I think we need to believe that there's a reason we're here, but I think we what we need to do is realize that we create our own reasons. So we got very lucky to even be born in the first place. You're you know one in a, a trillion shot that you're even alive. Um, not to put too much pressure on you uh, to 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 believe that you have to change the world. Not everybody does, but you should you know, uh, be a good custodian of your corner of it. I believe mm -hmm. that the purpose is what we create for ourselves. I did not know 25 years ago that I wanted to be a stand-up comedian and I wanted to make people laugh. Now, that's a very minor thing, but that's become a purpose for me is to reach as many people as I can. And, and in that, I found other purposes. I want to share my dealing with mental illness. I want to connect with people. I want to learn more. I want to, I mean, I, I think that we have to stop looking at things necessarily on such a grand scale. The idea that you are created to do this. That's, you know, the, the great man, the great woman uh, view of history is often incredibly wrong. Mm -hmm. And so we have to look at things as, you know, you are part. It's hard to accept that you're probably a worker ant and uh, you're probably not going to be the queen. You're a worker ant, but that doesn't mean you aren't important. Mm -hmm. And the purpose, I think, in that is to leave things better than you found it to try to be as good a person as you can, to try and do as little harm and try and do as much good as possible. And ultimately, when you close your eyes for the last time, whatever happens after that, um, you know, which I believe nothing does, but if, if something does, you can go into that believing that, you know what, I, I, you don't necessarily have to have, you know, discovered, a, a, you know, a new energy source or cured poverty or whatever. You don't have to have done that. Mm. But what you have to have done is been able to close your eyes for the last time you were you, you needed to be here and you deserved it and you earned it. And that's what I think the purpose is. I think the purpose is to to just try to make things as good as you can. Don't put too much pressure on yourself to change the world. But you know, your little corner of it should definitely be better when you leave. That's my idea of Damn. what it should. Be. Hey, man, I love that. Um, all right, I think that's a good place to leave it on, my man. Yeah. Uh, can you uh, tell my uh, audience uh, where they can uh, get your album and uh, when shows start up, where they can uh, yeah. follow you and hopefully go <laughs> see you live? Because uh, I'll, tell ever <laughs> yeah, I'll tell everybody uh, this guy is one of my favorite comics <laughs> ever, so I hope uh, people can uh, follow you and see uh, you live sometime. Well, thanks, man. Um, well, this is SimonKing.com. That's my website. Um, and on the in person section has all my tour dates. You can follow me on Twitter at Unfamous or on Instagram at This Is Simon King. And uh, I will uh, have a new special coming out this year soon, hopefully. Uh, we just got to wait for the end of the world to stop. And, uh, and then uh, I'll have tour dates up as soon as the end of the world stops again. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have a podcast called um, What's Wrong with Simon King. And where do and I, where do we find that? that? Uh, anywhere you find podcasts, probably right. where you found this podcast. Sick. And then, uh, and then also, if you want, you, I post the link to every week's episode on my podcast Twitter, which is uh, WWSK Podcast on Twitter. So you'll find me. Just cite. Uh, uh, I'm the big-headed guy. Yeah, <laughs> and I'll, uh, I'll tag all of those, man. Uh, thanks, thanks for coming man. on this, man. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. It was great chatting with you. Hey, everybody, that was this week's episode. Thank you so much uh, for listening. I appreciate the support. The best way you can uh, support this podcast is by going on to Apple or iTunes and rating this podcast. Um, if you give it a good rating and leave a nice comment, honestly, that's the best way to do it. 
uh, please check me out on Instagram or uh, YouTube under Newer Kid Why. I'm constantly going to be sharing clips of this podcast and also uh, telling you when new episodes are out and sharing a little bit of my comedy. So thank you so much uh, and uh, tune in to another episode next time on God, yay or nay. <laughs>